Chapter Six of Jacqueline of Golden River by H. M. Egbert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Six. At the foot of the cliff. The next morning, after again cautioning Jacqueline not to leave her room until I returned. I went to the house of Captain Dubois on Paul Street in the lower town. I was admitted by a pleasant-looking woman who told me that the captain would not be home until three in the afternoon, so I returned to the chateau, took Jacqueline for a sleigh ride around the fortifications, and delighted her, and myself also, by the purchase of two fur coats, heavy enough to exclude the biting cold which I anticipated we should experience during our journey. In the afternoon I went back to Paul Street and found Monsieur Dubois at home. He was a man of agreeable appearance, a typical Frenchman of about forty-five, with a full face sparsely covered with a black beard that was beginning to turn gray at the sides, and with an air of sagacious understanding in which I detected both sympathy and a lurking humor. When I explained that I wanted to secure two passages to St. Boniface, his brows contracted. "'So you too are going to the Chateau Duchesne,' he exclaimed. "'Is there not room for two more in the boat of Captain Duhamel?' I disclaimed all knowledge of Duhamel, but he looked entirely unconvinced. "'It is a pity, monsieur, that you are not acquainted with Captain Duhamel.' he said dryly, because I cannot take you to St. Boniface. But undoubtedly Captain Duhamel will assist you and your friend on your way to the Chateau Duchesne. "'Why do you suppose that I am going to the Chateau Duchesne?' I inquired angrily. He flared up, too. "'Diable!' he burst out. "'Do you suppose all Quebec does not know what is in the wind?' but since you are so ignorant monsieur i will enlighten you we will assume to begin then that you are not going to the chateau but only to saint boniface perhaps to engage in fishing for your support eh monsieur here he looked mockingly at my fur coat which hardly bore out this presumption of my indigence avian to continue let us suppose that the affairs of Monsieur Charles Duchesne have interested a gentleman of business and politics whom we will call Monsieur Leroux, just for the sake of giving him a name, you understand. He resumed, looking at me maliciously. And that this Monsieur Leroux imagines that there is more than spruce timber to be found in the seigneury. Bien, but consider further that this Monsieur Leroux is a mole as we call our politicians here. It would not suit him to appear openly in such an enterprise? He would always work through his agents in everything, would he not, being a mole? Let us say that he arranges with the Captain Duhamel to convey his party to St. Boniface, to which point he will go secretly by another route, and that he will join them there and, in short, monsieur, Take yourself and your friend to the devil, for I won't give you passage. His face was purple, and I assumed that he bore no love for Simon, 
whose name seemed to be of considerable importance in Quebec. I was delighted at the turn affairs were taking. "'You have not a very kindly feeling for this mythical person whom we have agreed to call LaRue,' I said. Captain Dubois jumped out of his chair and raised his arms passionately above him. "'No, nor for any of his friends,' he answered. "'Go back to him, for I know he sent you to me, and tell him he cannot hire Alfred Dubois for all the money in Canada.' "'I am glad to hear you say that,' I answered, "'because LaRue is no friend of mine.' Now listen to me, Captain Dubois. It is true that I am going to the chateau, if I can get there, but I did not know that LaRue had made his arrangements already. In brief, he is in pursuit of me, and I have urgent reasons for avoiding him. My companion is a lady. Eh? he exclaimed, looking stupidly at me. "'and I am anxious to take her to the chateau, "'where we shall be safe from the man—' "'A lady!' exclaimed the captain. "'A young one? "'Why didn't you tell me so at first, monsieur? "'I'll take you. "'I will do anything for an enemy of LaRue. "'He put my brother in jail on a false charge "'because he wouldn't bow to him. "'My brother died there, monsieur.' That was his wife who opened the door to you, and the children who might have starved if I had not been able to take care of them, and he has tried to rob me of my position, only it is a dominion one, the rascal. The captain was becoming incoherent. He drew his sleeve across his eyes. But a lady, he continued, with forced gaiety a moment later, I do not know your business, monsieur, but I can guess, perhaps. But you must not misunderstand me, I interposed. She is not— It's all right, said the captain, slapping me upon the back. No explanations. Not a word, I assure you. I am the most discreet of men. Madeline! This last word was a deep-chested bellow and in response a little girl came running in, staggering under the weight of the captain's overcoat of raccoon fur. "'That is my overcoat voice,' he explained, stroking the child's head. "'My niece, monsieur. The others are boys. I wish they were all girls, but God knows best. And, you see, a man can save much trouble—' for by the tone in which I call, Madeline knows whether it is my overcoat or my pipe or slippers that I want, or whether I am growing hungry. I thought that the captain's hunger voice must shake the rafters of the old building. And now, monsieur, he continued seriously when we had left the house, I am going to take you down to the pier and show you my boat and I will tell you as much as I know concerning the plans of that scoundrel. In brief, it is known that a party of his friends has been quartered for some time at the chateau. They come and go, in fact, and now he is either taking more, or the same ones, back again, and God knows why he takes them to so desolate a region, unless, as the rumor is, he has discovered coal fields upon the seigneury 
and holds Monsieur Duchesne in his power. Well, Monsieur, a party sails with Captain Duhamel on tonight's tide, which will carry me down the gulf also. You see, Monsieur, he continued, it is impossible to clear the ice unless the tide bears us down. But once the Isle of Orléans is passed, we shall be in more open water and independent of the current. Captain Duhamel's boat is berthed at the same pier as mine, upon the opposite side, for they both belong to the St. Laurent Company, which leases them in winter. We start together, then but I shall expect to gain several hours during the four days' journey, for I know the Claire well, and she cannot keep pace with my Saint-Vierge. In fact, it was only yesterday that the government arranged for me to take over the Saint-Vierge in place of the Claire, which I have commanded all the winter, for it is essential that the mails reach St. Boniface and the maritime villages as quickly as possible. So you must bring your lady aboard the Saint-Vierge by nine tonight. I shall telegraph to my friend Danton at St. Boniface to have a sleigh and dogs at your disposal when you arrive, and a tent, food, and sleeping bags, continued Captain Dubois, for it must be a hundred and fifty miles from St. Boniface to the Chateau Duchesne. It is not a journey that a woman should take in winter, he added with a sympathetic glance at me. But doubtless your lady knows the way and the journey well. The question seemed extraordinarily sagacious. It threw me into confusion. You see, Monsieur Danton carried the mails by dog sleigh before the steamship winter mail service was inaugurated, he went on, and now he will be glad of an opportunity to rent his animals so I shall wire him tonight to hold them for you alone, and shall describe you to him. And thus we will check M. Leroux's designs, which have doubtless included this point. And so, with half a day's start, you will have nothing to fear from him. Only remember that he has no scruples. Still, I do not think he will catch you and Mademoiselle Jacqueline before you reach Chateau Duchesne, he ended, chuckling at his sagacity. "'Ah, well, monsieur, who else could your lady be?' he asked, smiling at my surprise. "'I knew well that some day she must leave those wilds. Besides, did I not convey her here from St. Boniface on my return less than a week ago, when she pleaded for secrecy? I suspected something agitated her then.' so it was to find a husband that she departed thus? When she is home again, kneeling at her old father's feet, pleading for forgiveness, he will forgive, have no fear, mon ami. So Jacqueline had left her home not more than a week before, and the captain had no suspicion that she was married then. Yet Père Antoine claimed to have performed the ceremony. To whom? And where was the man who should have stood in my place and shielded her against Leroux? I made Dubois understand, not without difficulty, that we were still unmarried. His face fell when he realized that I was in earnest, but after a little he made the best of the situation, 
though it was evident that some of the glamour was scratched from the romance, in his opinion. By now we had arrived at the wharf. It was a short pier at the foot of one of the numerous narrow streets that run down from the base of the mighty cliff which ascends to the ramparts and Parc Frontenac. On either side, wedged in among the flows, lay a small ship of not many tons burden, the Clare and the St. Vierge, respectively. The latter vessel lay upon our right as we approached the end of the wharf. "'Allo! Allo, Pierre!' shouted Dubois, in what must have resembled his dinner voice, and a seaman with a short black beard came running up the deck and stopped at the gangway. "'It is all right,' said Dubois, after a few moments' conversation. "'Pierre understands all that is necessary, and he will tell the men. And now I will show you the ship.' There was a small cabin for Jacqueline and another for myself adjoining. This accommodation had been built for the convenience of the passengers who the St. Laurent Company, though its boats were built for freight, occasionally accepted during its summer runs. I was very well satisfied and inquired the terms. "'If it were not for the children, there should be no terms,' exclaimed the captain. "'But it is hard, monsieur, with prices rising and the hungry mouths always open like little birds.' He was overjoyed at the sight of the fifty dollars which I tendered him. However, my generosity was not wholly disingenuous. I felt that it would be wise to make one staunch friend in that unfriendly city, and money does bind, though friendship exists already. "'By the way,' I said, "'do you know a priest named Père Antoine?' "'An old man?' "'A strong old man?' "'Why, assuredly, monsieur,' answered the captain. "'Everybody knows him. "'He has the parish of the Riviere d'Or district, "'and the largest in Quebec. "'As far as Labrador it is said to extend, "'and he covers it all twice each year, "'in his canoe or upon snowshoes. "'A saint, monsieur, as not all of our priests are, alas.' you will do well to make his acquaintance." He placed one brawny hand upon my shoulder and swung me around. "'Now at last I understand,' he bellowed. "'So it is Père Antoine who is to make you and Mademoiselle husband and wife. And you thought to conceal it from me, monsieur,' he continued reproachfully. His good humor being completely restored by this prospective consummation of the romance, the captain parted from me on the wharf on his way to the telegraph office, repeating his instructions to the effect that we were to be aboard the boat by nine, as he would not be able to remain later than that hour on account of the tide. It had grown dark long before, and, looking at my watch, I was surprised to see that it was already past six o'clock. I had no time to lose in returning to the chateau. But though I could see it outlined upon the cliff, I soon found myself lost among the maze of narrow streets in which I was wandering. I asked the direction of one or two wayfarers, but these were all men of the laboring class, 
and their instructions, given in the provincial patois, were quite unintelligible to me. A man was coming up the street behind me, and I turned to question him, but as I decreased my pace, he diminished his also, and when I quickened mine, he went faster as well. I began to have an uneasy sense that he might be following me, and accordingly hastened onward until I came to a road which seemed to lead up the hill toward the ramparts. The chateau now stood some distance upon my left, but once I had reached the summit of the cliff it would only be a short walk away. The road, however, led me into a blind alley, the farther extremity being the base of the cliff, but another street emerged from it at a right angle, and I plunged into this, believing that any of the byways would eventually take me to the top of the acclivity. As I entered this street, I heard the footsteps behind me quicken, and, looking around, perceived that the man was close upon me. He stopped at the moment I did, and disappeared in a small court. There was nothing remarkable in this, only to my straining eyes he seemed to bear a resemblance to the man with the patch whom I had encountered at the corner of Sixth Avenue on that night when I met Jacqueline. I knew from LaRue's statement to me that the man had been a member of his gang. I was quite able to take care of myself under normal circumstances, but now I was afraid. The mighty cliff before me, the silence of the deserted alleys in which I wandered helplessly, the thought of Jacqueline alone, waiting anxiously for my return, almost unmanned me. I felt like a hunted man, and my safety, upon which her own depended, attained an exaggerated importance in my mind. So I almost ran forward into the byway, which seemed to lead toward the summit, and as I did so, I heard the footsteps close behind me again. I had entered one of the narrowest streets I had ever seen, and the most curious. It was just wide enough to admit the passage of a sleigh, perhaps. The crumbling and dilapidated old houses, which seemed deserted, were connected overhead by a succession of wooden bridges, and those on my left were built into the solid rock, which rose sheer overhead. In front of me the alley seemed to widen. I almost ran, but when I reached it I found that it was merely a bend in the passage, and the alley ran on straight as before. On my left hand was a tiny unfenced courtyard, not more than six yards in area, and I turned into this quickly and waited. I was confident that the bend in the street had hidden me from my pursuer, and, as I anticipated, he came on at a swifter rate. He was abreast of me when I put out my hand and grasped him by the coat, while with the other I felt in my pocket for my automatic pistol. It was not there. I had left it in the pocket of the overcoat which I had changed at the furrier's shop and had sent to the chateau. And I was looking into the villainous face of the ruffian who had knocked me down on Sixth Avenue. "'What are you following me for?' I cried furiously. He wrenched himself out of my grasp 
and pulled a long knife from his pocket. I caught him by the wrist, and we wrestled to and fro upon the snow. He pummeled me about the face with his free hand, but though I was no match for him in strength, he could not get the knife from me. The keen steel slashed my fingers, but the thought of Jacqueline helped me. I got his hand open, snatched the knife, and flung it far away among the stunted shrubs that clung to the cliffside. And we stood watching each other, panting. He did not try to attack me again, but stood just out of my reach, grinning diabolically at me. His gaze shifted over my shoulder. Instinctively I swung around as the dry snow crackled behind me. I was a second too late, for I saw nothing but the looming figure of a second ruffian and his upraised arm. Then painless darkness seemed to enfold me, and I was conscious of plunging down into a fathomless abyss. End of chapter 6 Recording by Roger Moline